Good morning, everybody. Welcome. My name is Ryan. Glad you're here. If you're new, we have um, a gift for you. So we'd like for you to grab that. It's on the info cart out front. Um, make sure you grab it because it's monetarily, monetarily beneficial if you like coffee. So we'd love for you to grab that. Hey, um, we're going to take our offering right now. And so if you... Uh, if you're new to this place, you can just let that go by. This is just uh, something we do every week because we believe that it's just a great way to um, honor God with our finances and support this place. And you guys have just been such a great support, so generous this year. I'm just so thankful for you, and it's allowing us to do everything that God's called us to do, and we're just so thankful. Um, two last quick things. Um, this week we're doing family shelter, and uh, you guys responded huge to our signups, but we have two holes, uh, Thursday night and Friday night, uh, spending the night at the shelter. We need one to two people each night, and so um, love to have you um, let us know. You can let us know on a connection card if you're interested. Um, couples, you can do it. Um, pair up, guys, couple guys want to get to know each other, hang out. Um, it's just, it's an easy gig. So love to, love to have you jump in Thursday, Friday night. Friday is taken care of. So it's just Thursday now. Can I get a Thursday? <laughs> there you go. Ben's got Thursday. Man, love this place. All right. <laughs> what else do we need? Uh, <laughs> it's like an auction. Um, I love this church. Anyhow, uh, and one more thing, fellas, uh, for the next four months, we're doing something really, really special on the second Monday of the month, and it starts actually a week from tomorrow. It's Chill and Grill, and we are uh, taking a journey this summer with some teaching together as some guys, and there's going to be great food um, and just great hanging out. Um, and so tomorrow, what's going to happen is, is a, a mass text is going to go out to all the guys in our church. And here's how you just let us know if you're coming by saying, I'll be there, like re respond to the text. Yes, whatever, just let us know you're coming. We need to know numbers because the food is gonna be that kind of good food, okay? It's not hot dogs, who cares how many people come. It's good food. So, um, so we want you to respond, let us know you're coming. You can invite friends with you, whatever, um, but we'd love to have you there and it's a BYO lawn chair kind of thing. So, um, some good food, Dan. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's no more interaction from you, Dan. Okay. Got lots to pray about. This is one of those messages, all right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, give us uh, your eyes, your perspective, your uh, vision for our lives, for our sexuality, for our marriages, for our singleness. For wherever you have us here, God, we just ask that you would um, speak through us, speak to us today through your word and uh, give us encouragement, um, show us where we need to correct, uh, show us where we need to put in effort, show us where we need people to come around us and help us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, uh, in a little bit, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But in the meantime, at the beginning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a journey back and we're going to look at some of the Old Testament theology on sexuality. And I think this is really important. If you've been tracking with us from the beginning, we're in a letter 
that Paul has written to a group of followers of Jesus in a very sexualized town called Corinth. Now, the whole letter isn't about sex, but it just so happens that this is the part of the letter that Paul is addressing some concerns that the people have asked him. Remember, he's writing this letter from Ephesus, and a team of people came all the way around the gulf to Ephesus from Corinth to inquire of Paul, to get Paul's advice, to get encouragement, to ask Paul's wisdom. And at this point in the letter, this is where he's getting back to them on the specific things that they are wanting to know. Last week, uh, the podcast didn't get recorded right, so we put my notes up on, online. So if you missed last week, you're going to have to read and not listen. Sorry. So reading is going to take work. Um, this week, um, last week we talked about porneia, which is anything outside of the covenant of marriage. And, and so we just talked about what that looks like. And then we ended with this idea that Paul says is you were bought with a price. That, that all of you, head to toe, your physicality, your spirituality, everything, everything that makes you was bought with a price, okay? This week, Paul takes uh, on a new look, and it, here's the thing. I will admit that most of the time in church circles, what you hear is the bad stuff, like what not to do. And I was a youth pastor for many years, and there was always like, hey, you know, there was this, there was this kind of like um, intentionality behind some parents, like just keep my kids from having sex. <laughs> like that was the, and so most of, most of the time the conversations was don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, okay? And, and, and what, what the churches failed to do was give the perfect picture for what God has intended, and instead of telling people not to, giving people a beautiful picture of what to shoot for. See the difference? And so that has been really the irresponsible part, I think, on many levels in the church. And so we're going to start with a conversation on Jewish theology of sexuality, which is really frank, it's really poetic, and then we're going to work out what this looks like as we get into 1 Corinthians. Okay, you ready? Genesis chapter 1, um, there is this beautiful section where uh, the, 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 the writer is talking about God making humanity in his own image, in their image. He made them male and female. He created them. Verse 27, it says, so God created mankind in his image. In, his, in, in the image of God, he created them male and female, created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and sub subdue it. So this is the very first command in Scripture. The very first one. What is the command? There it is. Be fruitful. It's, it turns out to be a great command, right? It, it's like this. Thanks, Randy. <laughs> it turns out to be this great command. And you need to understand that from the beginning of the story, from the opening pages and the first words out of God's mouth, God is after your joy. Like God is seriously in, in interested in after your joy. As a holistic, totally integrated human being, spiritual, physical, personality, sexuality, all mingled together, that God is actually after your joy. 
And that's something that this world, just this culture doesn't get. God made you. Everything about you God created was intended to be good. That was his intentionality. God created in the garden this uh, beautiful, um, this beautiful picture of what it looks like for two people to become one. God is after your joy. Now there's two myths about, about this that I think are really important for us to talk about. The myth number one is the Bible is about rules. All about rules. And what you need to know is that for every do not in scripture, there's a do. So did you know that this was really, obviously, Scripture opens with a do. Like, go for it. Myth number two, Scriptures have a low view of sexuality. Like, the, the different um, tone in our culture, in our world, is that the Bible is actually, um, has a low view of sexuality. And we talked about this last week. Actually, Scripture has a very high off-the-charts view of sexuality. Two becoming one in Hebrew, this beautiful picture, something mystical, happen, mystical happens when, when two people become one soul, one, as Scripture says, nefesh. It's this beautiful picture, of incredibly high, incredibly positive view of sexuality. Now, what we're going to do is a couple years ago, we jumped into it. We spent about eight or nine weeks in a, in a specific poetic Hebrew poetry book in scripture called Song of Songs. And if you were around for that, you know we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Today, I'm going to give you a small recap. A small recap of chapter four of Song of Songs. And I think this is really important for us to go through. Um, it's deep in, in, in the Jewish scriptures, and it's an erotic love poem is what it is. In fact, Young Jewish boys were not, al not allowed to read it until they were older, until they passed the age of 13. It's a short, poetic, drama love story. Here's what it's not. And you may have grown up in churches that have said, it's an, an allegory about Jesus' love for us. No, it's not. <laughs> it is not that at all, like in any sense of it, Okay. This is an ancient three-and-a-half-thousand-year-old Jewish erotic love poem. That's what this is. And what you need to know is all poetry in the Old Testament was meant for teaching because everything was passed on in an oral tradition. And so you would remember poetry, and poetry became, it began to sink inside of you, and, and, and it would just make its way, and you would remember, much like you and I remember song lyrics, movie lines, things like that. Ancient poetry was meant to be teaching poetry. And so chapter 4 is really important because chapter 4 gives us a glimpse of what sexuality looked like the way God intended it to look in the context of a committed, married man and woman on their wedding night. Yeah, it's about to get graphic, but it's really important that we do this, okay? So, chapter four is actually a sex scene. 
And the Bible is very frank and very honest. So if you're taking notes, which might make this less awkward, <laughs> there are five okay, glimpses of what sex is like. Okay, so let's start. Chapter 4, verse 1, goes like this. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your, behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. So, killer poetry right there. Um, I know you guys are like, wow, goats. But, I mean, in the distance, I mean, when you think of like uh, just seeing a whole, I'm not going to, who knows? It was probably. (laughs) Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn. I mean, this guy knows his farm animals, right? (laughs) Coming up from the washing. Okay, here's the thing. She's got white teeth, right? It's going to get even better. I just moved. There it is. Where am I at? Here we go. Here we go. Uh, Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Okay, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. She has all of her teeth. (laughs) So here's the deal. So guys, if you're single and you're wanting to know what what you should look for in a biblical spouse, teeth, (laughs) all of her teeth. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. (laughs) I know. We don't know. They knew. It was beautiful imagery for them. Here's the thing you need to understand. The first one you need to write down. Sex is verbal. It's verbal. He speaks to her. He romances her. Uh, Many scholars have said, like, Many people, like really, really wise people have said a woman's biggest sex organs are her ears. And she hears from the people that love her. And so this, he, he praises the beauty of his wife. He goes on, he says, your neck, here we go. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. He's basically saying, you are you're a classy woman. You are dignified. You, are, you, are, you have dignity to you. Verse 5, some of your guys' favorite words here. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. So what's happening is this is a wedding night. This is, she is undressing in front of him. And, and he is praising what he sees. And so really the second thing I think is really important for us to understand is sex is also visual. And guys, some of the biggest sex organs for us is our eyes. And, and, and there's this, this interplay of verbal and visual going on. Uh, verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me. From Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, uh, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride, with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance, fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. 
he's saying things like, you're, you're, there's no flaw in you. You have captivated me. You have, you have stolen my heart. And the third thing you need to write down is sex is safe. It's safe. Now, earlier in the book, and we got into this when we did the, the series, but she said, I am dark but lovely. What well, the meaning behind that was is if you were, um, if you were tan, okay, it actually meant that you were in the fields a lot, meaning you had to work hard and you had to, you had to, you were, you were probably of a lower economic, uh, you know, status. And, and so she was insecure about being tan in her culture. Now, what, what I want to tell you is the reality is husbands, you need to understand that every woman on the planet has insecurities about how she looks. In fact, I think everybody has insecurities about how they look, but I think it's specifically more intense for our wives, especially in a sex-saturated culture. Everything we, they feel insecure about, and, and, and there's all these unreal images plastered everywhere. And so there's something about a husband's job is to make their wife feel safe, feel no flaw, feel captivated. And no one is flawless, but your wife is now your standard of beauty, right? If she's short, you love short, right? If she's tall, you, you're into tall. See what I'm saying? That is why porn is so dangerous. Because it ruins, it creates unrealistic expectations. It, it rips satisfaction. It, it rips safety out of this relationship. And the writer, the, the, the man in the story, is actually working overtime to create safety. Uh, the writer is the woman, but the man is working overtime to create safety, and she feels safety. It says, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. My bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like, a frag- is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You're, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. The fourth thing you need to write down is sex is holy. It's set apart. She is a garden locked up. They are together, and now they know they have the rest of their lives to figure things out. And that's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for you. They were naked and unashamed. They were exclusive to each other. And it's beautiful. Now, if you're here and you think that that picture of sexuality, that picture, it's too late for me. I blew it. I've got a past. I've got regrets. What Scripture always does is it puts up a vision for the best, right? It puts up a vision for the best, uh, fully flourishing, fully 
human thing that God wants for us. Romans tells us that we all fall short of what that is. Every single one of us. We're broken and bent in certain ways. We've made mistakes. We've blown it. And we fall short of that. And Jesus enters the picture to restore and redeem, to forgive, to move us down the road he intended for us. And that's the beautiful part of it. Wherever you're at in this, there's a journey ahead of you that God wants to restore and reshape and remake you. So sex is holy and it's beautiful. And the last bit we're going to work through here is verse 16. And she speaks back. She says, Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Now I'm not going to unpack that. (laughs) <laughs> There's some sermons way back when we did this that you can, you can, you know, you can use your imagination, whatever you want to do. She speaks first. She speaks the longest. And then it says, and this is him speaking, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh and my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, and I've drunk my wine and my milk. Last one is this. Sex, this is really important, sex is the way two people become one. And we talked about this last week, this word ikad. See, nine times, just in those two verses, nine times, actually it's one verse, he says my. Now, that might sound possessive to you, that's not what the writer's intending, he says my in an akkad sense, mine in a, that we are one, mine in a, uh, you and I are, are one together, so reverent, so sacred. And the last line is a very important line. The majority of scholars believe that this is the one and only time that God speaks into the story. And, it, and it, he says this, eat, friends, and drink, drink your fill of love. God actually smiles and says, this is for you. Eat and drink. Now, many people don't really understand God, including Christians. And we're going to get into this, um, his view of what he made. And um, it's not something that Hollywood created. And, And with all of this in the back of your mind, okay, this is Jewish Uh, theology that Paul, okay, has in his mind when he is responding to the conversation that the Corinthians are having with him, okay? Does that make sense? Because Paul is rich and thick with Jewish theology. He is a teacher of all things uh, of, of Jewish uh, heritage. And, and so in verse uh, one of chapter seven in this letter, I want to read this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, this is Paul. He's, remember, he's responding to these questions, and he, they had some things to ask. And he's answering their questions. And there's a quote at the beginning. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a, mo- with a woman. Now, the, the word there, sexual relations, means uh, actually is a word do not touch, not to touch a woman, which is a euphemism for sexual relations. Now, Paul is not quote, this isn't Paul's quote, 
This is their quote to him. Okay? So he's responding to their quote to him. It is good not to have sexual relations with a woman, and this is totally misunderstood. In fact, in many, many teachings, um, modern teachings on sexuality within the church, this is misquoted. This is not understood. Uh, we think the contest means that there are married people who uh, have chosen not to have sex anymore. Okay? And, and, and listen, remember, the city is rampant with sexuality, and there was two responses to this, okay? Um, remember last week, the everything is permissible crowd? Remember that crowd? We talked about this, if you were here. If not, go read it. <laughs> um, this crowd was like, and we talked about Plato and Platonic thought and, and how your body and your soul are different and separated and the body was just material so you could do whatever you want with your body. Remember they used that quote, food for the uh, stomach and the stomach for food, okay? Which Paul is responding to and he's saying, no, 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 no. You are one whole integrated being. That's why you were bought with a price and, and how this is so important. So there's that everything permissible crowd, the animalistic crowd that basically says your body do whatever you want with your body it's only physical then what Paul's responding is to the lock it down crowd okay everything's permissible crowd is over here then there's the lock it down crowd the crowd that actually heightens things they're kind of more of the angel side of things right and and they actually believe that the souls are good the bodies are bad and that there's this unbiblical idea that the spiritual material th worlds are separate, meaning sex is material, therefore it's bad, and it's only good for procreation, okay? So there's an element in the church that is actually super, super conservative, and super, super like, hey, sex is bad, we can't, we can't have sex anymore, we're married, but we can't have sex anymore because it's, the bodies are bad, and it's bad, and Paul's actually responding to this. This is what Paul is responding to. Verse 2, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each, and it's supposed to be husband, should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each wife with her own husbands. Now, there's so many misinterpretations of this. It's not saying, if you are single, get married quick and have sex because you can't handle it. That's not what this is saying. He's saying, because you live in a sexually immoral place, if you are married, you need to make sex a priority with your spouse. Does that make sense? Paul is saying that the, the pressures and the, 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 just the frenetic energy of sexuality in your culture is such a big deal that if you are married, you need to make it a priority, and he goes on to say why. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, that word duty is so lame. In fact, in the ESV, if you have an ESV with you, it's horrible. It says, fulfill their conjugal duties, which sounds like prison. <laughs> Not that kind of prison. I just overstepped. The point is, <laughs> it sounds very cold and duty-bound. 
sex in God's eyes is a central part to your relationship with your spouse. It's how two people come, become one and stay one. That's what Paul is saying. He's actually encouraging the married couples to be one more and more and more and make it a priority. He says, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And this is where some of you who are like, Paul is such a chauvinist. That is so bad. Like, that, that sounds to our, to our 21st century years, that sounds so bad. But what Paul is getting at is mutuality. That if you are one with your spouse, your body is not your own. Remember last week we talked about how the body is is part of who you are. And over and over again, we talked about what this looked like. And it's not new information. And he actually goes on, he says, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, I just got to tell you something. That is the most subversive thing that Paul could have ever said to these people. Remember the culture. Remember this was like, this was the shocking reversal that the people probably weren't expecting, right? A hundred percent of the time, husbands, for men, husbands, it was acceptable for you in Corinthian culture to have affairs on the side, but not for your wife. Husbands were free to roam in Corinthian culture. Listen, do you remember this? Last week, the Greek or Orator Demosthenes. I don't know if we have this quote up here. I'll read it if we, d if we don't. We got it? Yes. It says, We men have concubines and courtesans for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care, which is a euphemism, and wives to give us legitimate children and to be guardians of our household. Lame, right? If you're, I mean, that's just not cool. You wouldn't accept that kind of a relationship. What Paul is actually doing is absolutely turning that on its head. Paul is saying, guys, men, you, your body belongs to your wife. Period. End of story. That was absolutely controversial only other place you hear anything like this in ancient writings is in the Song of Solomon. It's the only other place. I am talking scholars have combed ancient writings all the way back. The most egalitarian, beautiful picture of marriage in all of ancient texts is Song of Solomon. And Paul is affirming that and reaffirming that, and he is saying this is the picture that God put forth about what this should look like. Verse 5, hang in there, we're almost done. Do not deprive each other. <laughs> now, this is um, an interesting word, this word deprive. It actually is the same word that we looked at a few weeks ago when Randy taught about those two guys stealing from each other defrauding each other. This is the same word. Paul's actually saying, don't steal this from each other. Like, don't defraud your spouse. You're st you could be stealing from your spouse when it is 
Sex should never be a reward or a punishment. It should never be. And when you feel, the reality is when you feel the most distant as a, as a married couple, chances are you need time alone together. Chances are you need to figure out getting away together. Sex is about how two people become one and stay one. And then he, he says this, which is hilarious. It's because uh, he's, he's responding to some very religious people, it sounds like, right? Except for perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. <laughs> then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when things begin to wane sexually in your marriage, you open your marriage up to powerful temptation. That's what Paul is saying. And what Paul is really saying is that the best way to stay married and pure is not prayer and Bible study. It's to have sex. Regularly. Together. You and your spouse. <laughs> Only. <laughs> Together. Beautiful. James says not to listen to the word, but to do what it says. So take that for that. <laughs> and now here, here's, it's just really important for you to understand, okay? Paul is wanting married couples to pursue this together, to make this a priority, to stay as close as they possibly can be to avoid temptation, to avoid that. Now, for single, uh, let me just, I'll get to single folks here in a second. L let me just say this. Wives, and this is going to sound totally Dr. Laura, and I don't want this to sound that way. Because there's a fight for this together. And you remember how I said that guys are visual and sex is visual? You need to understand, ladies, that pornea is everywhere. It screams at us, guys. It literally screams at us. And it's something that you may not totally understand. And your husband is always fighting to say no. Always. I meet with guys all the time. We're always just like trying to encourage each other. Always fighting that. Sometimes, ladies, you have to fight to say yes. <laughs> I get it. You can, I mean, you can help. You can literally, you can, you, can, you can come to the rescue of your husband's purity in a lot of ways. And I know this sounds so chauvinistic, but you fight together, right? You fight together, and um, that's, that's as much as I'm going to say on that. Single folks in the room, and we are so happy you're here. And you might be saying to yourself, why does Paul have to command married couples to have sex? Like, when I'm married, that's not going to have to be a command, right? Like, <laughs> um, let me just tell you the reality is. The reality is a healthy marriage and a healthy sex life does not just happen. You throw some kids in there. 
you throw some bills in there, you throw some health stuff in there, <laughs> you know, it's like, really? I'm tired. <laughs> you make me angry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you didn't do this or you didn't do that or whatever. Like, it just doesn't happen like that. And I'm going to make, it, the reality is, is you have to make the choice. I'm going to make this a huge pi- priority, and it doesn't just happen. We don't just, f- you don't just fall into weekends away, right? <laughs> They're like, money doesn't just like, hey, this is perfect. I, we've got all this extra cash. Let's, let's go to the Hilton. You've got to fight. Your budget has to fight. Your time has to fight. Your energy level has to fight to make this happen. So if you're here today and you were single, the fight actually starts now before you're married. And you, you war to live pure. You war to wait. You war, to, rem- you war to, to believe and trust and have the faith that that picture that God has put in place is actually worth fighting for. Actually worth fighting for. That actually showing up on your wedding night without regrets, without baggage, without your spouse comparing you with somebody else. All that stuff is such a beautiful thing to war for. And if you're here today and you're engaged and you're really in a, an intense relationship and you're, you're serious about somebody, I want you to save yourself from them and for your husband or wife in the future. And it's worth the fight. It's all that kind of stuff. And you might say it's too late for me. And I'm telling you, you can restart. You can let God help you reimagine and reprioritize and reshuffle who you think, what, what you think is important to make that happen. And the third thing is, is if you're here today and you're married and maybe you feel like you guys are off track and you're disconnected and you're drifting You just need to know it's worth every ounce of energy. It's worth all of the hard work that you can put into making this happen. The best things are worth working for. If you've been married for a long time, you understand what I mean by that. See, here's what's really important for us to understand as we finish. This is really, really, really important. Questions about sexuality are really questions about faith. That's what they're really questions about. Is the story that God paints worth it? Can we trust him with it? Is it good enough? See, the issue in in the scriptures in the garden was this idea that God was somehow holding out on them. That God was actually holding back his goodness from Adam and from Eve. And really, we, we, that's, where, that's the trap we fall into all the time. That, that there's, there's some goodness out there, there's some, there's, some, there's some thrill and some passion out there that God is holding out on me. He's holding back from me. And really, what uh, sexuality is, is a question about faith. The world story is the best sex is spontaneous. It's a release. There's no, um, there's no like uh, effects of it um, on my life or on anybody else's life. It's purely animalistic. God's story is the best sex is when a man and a woman say, I am faithful to you. 
I want to be a cod with you. Who are you going to believe? Like, who are you really going to believe? And there's an inertia to it. And our culture pulls at us, and it tells us, and it, and it tries to, to, to force us into thinking in a certain way. Here are the stats on it. For the last, seriously, for the last 30 years, anthropologists, sociologists have been studying, study after study after study. You can look them all up. And they are blown away by the hypothesis. See, it, it, it actually blows away their hypothesis uh, uh, that they think that the, the best sex is actually free and no, uh, nobody, you know, suppressing me, nobody, nobody oppressing me. It's just whatever I want to do with my body whenever I want to do it. The people that they find have the best sex are married, monogamous, religious couples, and particularly those that were virgins. And they keep redoing the study. No, that can't be right. <laughs> they keep redoing it. Oh, no, it can't be right. Turns out there's this ancient three and a half thousand year old love poem that says, yeah, it's kind of right. Questions about your sexuality are really questions about your faith. Who are you going to believe? All the conversations about sex are a matter of faith. So, we're going to pray, and that's the end. We're going to be done. You work this out with your spouse. Maybe you have homework. Guys are like, yeah, <laughs> homework. Singles, you may need to take a cold shower. I don't know. <laughs> we're here as a community. We're, we're all figuring out how to follow Jesus the best way we can with all of us. Get it? Let me pray.